Next Sunday, we'll be celebrating Christmas, the birth of Jesus. I can't believe that it's already here. I'm glad we also have another uh, week, as Nancy said, to wait and to expect that celebration. Uh, Also, next Sunday, we'll uh, continue to have our annual tradition of bringing our Christmas Eve offering a a day early, if you will, uh, as a gift to Jesus. After all, Christmas is Jesus' birthday, and so the past several years, we have taken up a special offering that we give 100% away uh, each year to two very deserving ministries that are doing great things for God's work in the world. Uh, Last year, our offering went to, uh, half of it went to go to Haiti. Uh, where we're establishing clean water in uh, two communities down there where people don't have clean water. We've already sent people from our congregation down to help scout out these locations. We're going back in March to see how that is, and and we've shared some of those pictures with you. Uh, The other uh, ministry that we supported last year was New Story Church, a United Methodist Church, a new church plant in the Winston-Salem area. Uh, And so I've got a picture today, an update. Um, This is a picture of the building that's going to be the free medical clinic uh, in their community, they live in, uh, they're, they're housed, uh, the church is in an at-risk community in Winston-Salem, uh, where a lot of folks live in poverty or battling addictions, uh, and our offering from last year, our gift to Jesus, uh, is going to make this free medical clinic possible for people who live in the community to receive free medical care, and so uh, you all made that possible, and so praise be to God, uh, I just want to give you that update, it's taken them a year to get through the bureaucracy and the red tape, uh, to get to this point, and picture there is the new director uh, of the of the clinic and also the construction uh, manager. And so we celebrate uh, your great generosity from last year. This year, we're going to be giving uh, our Christmas Eve offering uh, to two ministries that are doing amazing work in helping people who are homeless. Uh, last Sunday, um, we got snowed out. Well, not really snowed out, but iced out, rained out. Uh, and so uh, our first recipient, um, Supportive Housing Communities, was going to be with us here uh, and, and get a chance to introduce themselves. And so uh, this past week, Kevin and I went out to interview them at their office. Uh, we went uptown Charlotte to do this. And uh, right when we're getting ready to interview them, uh, someone called in a bomb threat through the building. And so we had to leave the building and uh, we walked across town to First United Methodist, our sister church that gave us a room. Uh, to do this interview. So I'd just like to introduce you to uh, Supportive Housing Community here in Charlotte, uh, just a brief clip to tell you about some of their success of helping get people off the street into affordable housing where they are able to stay. Check this out. So Kelly, you have an amazing success rate at SHC. Yes. Could you tell us what that is and, and how you've been able to achieve that? Thank you, love to. Um, We're very proud, we have 97% success of our residents remaining in stable housing, and we measure that by residents who stay in our program or who move beyond our program into stable housing. Um, We make sure that they have a good situation once they leave. So very thrilled, we think it's one of, if not the best in the community. So 97% success rate of people staying housed, just incredible. And I think you talked with me earlier that Part of that is your caseworkers with the personal relationships, and also part of it is with the residents also invest part of their income into it. So it's really a true partnership. Is that correct? Mm Yes. 
our social workers um, are trained really well. Um, we're talking about people who have been chronically homeless, homeless at least a year with at least one disability. Um, they learn how best to work with each individual, each family, to figure out um, where they need help and then create goals that they can work towards. And speaking of, for affordable housing, they do invest 30% of their income into the rent at each of the places. And depending on what that is, so if it's $100, they pay 30 bucks. If they have no income, then we'll subsidize the rest. Okay. But more important than the subsidy are the case managers that are helping serve each individual client and giving them um, goals and a place to live again, a community that they can enjoy. So supported housing communities has a 97% rate of retention of taking people who are homeless and getting them involved in their own home where they invest their own money and they work with caseworkers to ensure that they stay there. So this is not just a Band-Aid fix. This is the real deal. They have several locations throughout the city of Charlotte. They also have homeless ministry to, to people who are on the street that they're trying to transition into housing. And so I asked Kelly, uh, what would our money go to through the Christmas Eve offering this year? And she says they have 15 new people who are homeless and they're ready to be housed and they've gone through the vetting process. And so our gifts uh, next Sunday uh, will go to help 15 new people get off the streets uh, this Christmas and into next year to where they will live in affordable housing. They'll also be contributors, uh, and we will make a difference in this amazing, challenging um, issue in our city, uh, and we get to be a part of that. So just wanted to share part of their story. It's just, it, again, 97%. It's incredible the rate that they're doing. Uh, our second recipient uh, is Haywood Street uh, Congregation in Asheville, North Carolina. This is a, another United Methodist Church plant. It's, it's been around several years. Uh, and what's interesting is they also are a ministry to the homeless. They're doing revolutionary homeless ministry. People from around the nation come to Haywood Street to see how they do what they do. And what's really special, we've helped support them in the past, we've been partners with them, and we continue to be, uh, is their founding pastor, Pastor Brian Combs, grew up in our church. Uh, and so he was in children's ministry. He was in the youth group. His parents were here before they all uh, moved to Asheville uh, when God gave Brian this great vision to do what he's doing. And so uh, we're glad to welcome Brian back here today. He's going to be delivering the message this morning. I'm going to let him tell you more about Haywood Street and what they're doing. Uh, but let's give Pastor Brian a warm South Park Church welcome as he comes back home to be with us today. It is not true that you can't come back home. In fact, since I graduated from seminary over and again, you all have invited me to come back to this place. And it's true that none of us are a product of what we have done ourselves, but only a product of those who have loved us most. And as Kyle said, this is, this is my home. I grew up in this church, went to Sunday school, went to worship, went to UMYF. I went to the ski trips. I went to the mission trips confirmed this is the place that raised me most and so it is is a deep joy for me to get to come and be among you and what I'm so clear about is as you already know a church is not a building it's the people and so whether we're in a movie theater or whether we're across the street in the old building or when we meet again in the new building this is this is family to me so I give thanks for the invitation to be here and I want you to know perhaps as importantly as anything is Everything that's happening in Asheville began with you all. You are the ones that introduced me to Jesus. You are the ones that opened the scriptures to me and taught me what it means to be a, a person of faith. You all are the ones that taught me that to be a follower of Jesus means to be bound up in those people who are suffering most. And it was, it was that mentorship that you all offered that began Haywood Street. 
For those of you that I have not had a chance to meet yet, Kyle asked me to give you a, a little summation of who we are and what we do. We are a United Methodist Mission Congregation, and what that means is that we are bound up with a community of people who cannot make a financial offering. So when we have worship on Wednesdays and Sundays, for example, inevitably there will be people who put their nickels and dimes in the offering plate, but that's not enough to pay for all the bills and salaries and things that happen. And so we are a ministry that's intentionally dependent on other folks, and we're dependent on you all. And in our 10 years of ministry, there have been three churches that have been most generous. One is Central United Methodist in Asheville. The second is Myers Park here in Charlotte. And then there's Sharon. You all far and away have been generous over and over again. And literally, you've made the difference in in our ability to to make our budget. So thank you for your generosity. Haywood Street began with a very, very simple premise, and that was, how do we welcome those who are most excluded in the world? And if you've been in Asheville, you know it is a beautiful city that continues to build newer and taller hotels to invite tourists from near and far to come. And yet there is this contingency of folks that is also growing, of people who are chronically homeless, who live with severe mental illness, who struggle with every addiction possible. And we said from the beginning, if you're housed, if you have a car or two or a house, if you have an income, if you have insurance, you can go to any church you want. But there's another group of people who actually feel like they don't have anywhere they can go. And so Haywood Street said, why don't we begin with whoever's last in line and say, we want you to be first. So we started with a worship service, Wednesday at 1230, middle of the day, middle of the week. We did it then. It's a very inconvenient time for folks that are working. But again, if our intention is to welcome people who aren't working, what we heard overwhelmingly was that's when I struggle with getting high the most, and I'd rather hear the good news than use. So we started worship at lunchtime, and that grew. And then we heard folks say, you know, I can go to a number of soup kitchens in town to have a meal, but usually what happens is I stand in a long line, I receive a bowl of soup in a styrofoam container that came out of a can and a leftover soup that somebody cut off the mold from. I eat my food as quickly as possible and then I move on. It, it certainly fills my belly, but there is something lacking in terms of my soul care. So we started the welcome table. The welcome table is the opposite of the soup kitchen model. You sit at a round table. There's a linen napkin. There's real silverware. You eat off a piece of pottery. There's a glass. There's a wait staff. There's a candle. There's real flowers. Everything is homemade. You can eat all of the seven-course meal you want. You can come back three times and eat. And we say, we'd like you to come early, and we'd like you to come often. There, there's no criteria about how much you get here. It's all on the house, so eat all you want. The welcome table has grown exponentially. It's now a partnership with over 50 of the best restaurants in Asheville who bring their James Beard award-winning chefs down to the church. They cook the meal. Their servers help serve it. And folks that loiter in front of these fancy restaurants now get a chance to dine um, with these incredible chefs eating this incredible food. We also have a clothing closet. Typically, the way those works is you have to get interviewed, fill out some paperwork, and then someone on the other side of the desk determines what you qualify for. Or you meet in a parking lot somewhere, and there's a big pile of clothes, and you sift through it. We said, how can we make our clothing closet more like a shopping experience? So 
There's no interview process. You don't have to show an ID. You just show up and take all you want. Everything's hung up on racks, organized by size and by gender. There's dressing rooms. There's a mirror. We say, please, take whatever you want. In fact, we encourage people to take more than they want. We also have a respite center. What we learned from our congregants at Haywood Street is that usually what happens is you don't have a primary care doctor, and so you have to go to the ER if you have pneumonia or the cold or you got hit by a car or you have cancer. And for the hospital, they're not going to get paid because you don't have insurance, so you're going to get discharged as quickly as possible. But you're likely going to get discharged back to the street, back to a tent, for you and I, we'd get discharged back to our home, and our loved one would take care of us. But if you're homeless, you don't have that option. So in our old Sunday school wing of, of Haywood Street, we renovated that whole space and turned it into an eight-bed facility where folks can come and live with us. There's eight people at a time. There's always a waiting list. We take folks from as far as Tennessee and Georgia, from all over North Carolina. There's only a few respites in the South, regrettably, and so there's an enormous need. And as important as it is that we provide medication management, we take you to all your follow-up appointments, we have a nursing staff that looks after your care, what we have realized is that ultimately the thing that is most therapeutic for someone who's homeless is to have the absence of street stress. You don't have to worry about if someone's going to steal all your stuff. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to get a trespassing ticket for camping on someone else's land. You can just come and heal and we have seen personalities start to reemerge that have not been seen in decades because people were finally just allowed to heal. Controversially, we started a needle distribution program a number of years ago. We noticed that so many folks in our congregation were struggling with opioid addiction. And what we found was that there is a seven times more likelihood possibility that someone will re receive recovery if they come to a needle exchange or a needle distribution. And so one of the things addiction does most of all is it isolates you. It convinces you that nobody cares about you anymore. But if you come to a clinic and say, I need clean needles, in many ways it is an act of self-care to say, I don't want to get HIV, I don't want to get hep C, and I need to connect with someone else in the world who knows my name. And so literally, while worship is going on right behind our sanctuary at Haywood Street, we distribute about five to 8,000 needles a month. And so what we have noticed is folks that have been so ostracized by the world and within poverty communities, there are sub-communities that are even more marginalized. And if you are struggling with mental illness, chronic homelessness, and you're an IV drug user, you are told in every way possible the world does not want you anymore. And so again, if Haywood Street is trying to say, whoever's suffering most, we want you to come here, well, IV drug users are folks that come to Haywood Street more and more, and it is complicated, it is messy, and we feel like it's, it's one of the most faithful ways we know of to live out the gospel. We also do a bunch of other stuff. We do haircuts. We have an acupuncture clinic for folks to get free medical care. We take folks backpacking. We take folks to work on Habitat for Humanity houses that are homeless. And, of course, we have worship service. And for those of you that have been to worship, you know it is not like any other worship service. It is my responsibility more than anything to give leadership of worship away. And so what you will hear from folks in poverty overwhelmingly is I've never been trusted with anything, much less reading the scripture or serving communion or leading the prayer time. And so we say to folks who come, listen, what is God calling you to do today? 
Okay, you want to sing a song? Well, it's not on the program, but you can sing a song. You want to anoint someone? Well, here's oil. Please offer this ritual. And it's turned into this blend of all kinds of people that are coming together to worship that likely would have nothing to do with them, each other under any other circumstances. I'm often asked about who is transformed the most at Haywood Street, and there's no doubt for folks that are in poverty to experience a sense of welcome and inclusion is, is transformative in some remarkable, remarkable ways. And for many people who've been ostracized by their family, have bis, been disowned by the world, when you say, you belong here, you literally see people change in remarkable ways. But perhaps what's even more miraculous are housed people like you and me who come to Haywood Street who say, I'm here to help. And one of the things that we do at Haywood Street is unequivocally say, we're glad you're here to help, but at least the first time you come, you have to be empty-handed to receive. So you can't put on an apron, you can't pick up a spatula, but you can sit at the table and eat. You can come to worship and hold hands with someone. You can be prayed for. And what inevitably happens is someone who's well-appointed in life, who has all the paraphernalia of privilege, says, I didn't realize that perhaps my own poverty is greater than the person who needs food and clothing and belonging. And that has been the, the great surprise of Haywood Street. And as Kyle talked about, we've unofficially turned into this teaching parish where churches and seminaries have come from, from long distances to, to learn about what's happening. And that's the invitation that we offer over and over again is we all are people of need. No matter how much money we have, no matter... What our degrees on the wall says, we all have a deep, deep need for God and for each other. And that's what church is supposed to be about. So I can't say thank you enough for your Christmas offering. It makes such a difference in what we are doing. Haywood Street is growing rapidly. We hired seven people last year. I think we're getting ready to hire another three people in the coming year. And we're trying to just keep up with how many people are suffering in Asheville. And your money makes an enormous difference. So thank you, thank you, thank you. 400 years ago, King James refused to reform the church. And so the English Puritans said, well, we're going to sail for the new world. And when their ships ran aground on the coast of Massachusetts, their, their mission was clear. We are going to fix all that's wrong with Roman Catholicism. We're going to indoctrinate the colonies. And we're going to evangelize our version of Christianity. It included this. We're going to have a pro-work ethic. We're going to be very, very skeptical of celebration. We're going to have a manifest destiny, and we are going to have a deep suspicion of Jesus' mother. Because of distrust with Catholicism, Protestants then and now have missed out on the rightful veneration of Mother Mary. And yet, every Advent, Methodist, Episcopalians and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists have to confront the mother of our faith, the patriarch of everything that we believe, if we're all going to make it to Bethlehem by Christmas. And so in an attempt to reclaim this woman who is so important to everything we believe and the whole story of Christmas, the question for us to consider today is, why does God choose Mary? Why does God choose Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Our scripture today comes from the beginning of Luke, chapter 1, and I invite you to consider answering that question. 
as you hear the text read. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me fulfilled. And then the angel left her. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. All right, church, this is your chance to help preach. For those of you that remember going to Haywood Street or the previous times that I've been among you, our sermon is always participatory. And so this is your chance to speak out and respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying about this text today. So our question again is, why was Mary chosen to be the mother of God? What do you think? She was pure. Yeah, she was pure of heart. Yeah, the text says, obviously, she is a virgin. And so often when it comes to celibacy, what we do is we tend to over-sexualize it and say it has everything to do with what happens between the sheets. But the truth is, the purity of Mary is that she made one decision. Celibacy is ultimately about saying there is only one person I want to be in relationship with most, and that's God. And that's ultimately the, cho- the choice that Mary made. And because of that, there is something that is untainted about her soul. There is something pure about her that is to be revered. It's a reminder to all of us, our primary relationship is always supposed to be with God. And what's so touching to me about this is here is Mary. The, the scholarship around this text says she's probably 12, maybe 13, She's a peasant girl from nowhere, Nazareth. And yet, this is the one who God chooses. It's a reminder to me over and over again that Mary is the least likely. And yet, when it comes to ministry or what we do in God's name, most of us say, I've got to go to seminary. I've got to get ordained. I've got to have Kyle or Nancy bless this. Yet, none of that matters. God is saying to Mary and to all of us, You are more than good enough. All God needs is our response. And there is something so incredibly pure about Mary raising her hand and saying, I will be a part of what you're doing, God. What else? Thank you. Why does She's humble. Absolutely. There is a humility about Mary. In fact, if you look at art throughout 
Christian history, what you will notice is Mary always has this contemplative gaze on her face and her head is usually bowed. I don't read that as submissiveness. I read that as rather a radical sense of obedience. There's a wonderful quote that faith is a long obedience in the same direction over an entire lifetime. And there's something about Mary that she realizes from the very beginning. This is about God and it is not about me. Too often Christianity can be a a tour of self-congratulations. Look what I have done. The spotlight is on me. And yet Mary, over and over again, she deflects all of that and just says, this is what God is doing. This is what God is doing, and God is using me. But God is always center stage, and I am always stage right or stage left. There is a tendency to make ourselves our own higher powers. It is one of the great idolatries that all of us struggle with in one way or another. But Mary, from the beginning, remains humble. At no point in the Gospels do you see her say, look at me. Look at all I've done. I'm the mother of Jesus. I'm the one that should be taking credit. When are they going to make the statue for me? When are they going to name the church after me? None of that happened. She just simply did what God asked of her, and that was enough. And friends, for those of you that are looking for a life of meaning, and you want to align yourself more with something that matters, here's Mary. What an incredible example. She simply was humble. She responded to what God was asking of her, and that was it. Yes, thank you. She was humble. What else? I heard a number of things. I heard that she was ordinary. Let's go there, and then we'll come back to the other one. Mary was ordinary. Again, this is a peasant girl that was uneducated, that was from backwater ancient Palestine. She did not come from the right stock. She did not have the famous parents. She was not educated in the most famous synagogue. She was ordinary in every possible way. And one of the strange things that comes up this time of year is that there can be the seduction, especially out in the world, that Christmas is a prayer of escapism. That if we're truly going to make it to Bethlehem, what we want more than anything is to somehow get on this spiritual rocket ship and be transported to another place and another time, and that's where we'll meet God. But that's entirely unbiblical. The story of Scripture over and again is that God takes up residence in what happens every day. God takes up residence in the daily routine. God takes up residence in the ordinary. And what's more ordinary than this girl that's going about her day? She's likely going to milk the cows and then help her parents and then go down and trade something at the market. And God says, this is where I want to begin the story of salvation. It's in the ordinary. And so that means for all of us, God is perhaps most accessible when we're washing dishes, when we're waiting at the red light, when we're at the drive through window, when our kids are between here and there. Christianity is the religion that says it is the domestic that is most holy. That is where God hides in plain sight for our noticing. Yes, she's ordinary. What was the other one? She didn't care what people thought about her. Let's be really clear what was on the line for Mary. She's 12 years old, and she shows up pregnant. She's not married. 
We know what that would mean today. <laughs> Rewind 2,000 years ago. We remember that women were not women back then. They were property. In fact, they were a little bit lower than livestock. And so Mary's predicament was already precarious because of her gender. But now she's pregnant. And we can hear the whispers from the townspeople. Is the father the milkman or the mailman? We can see Joseph quietly going to the lawyer's office to draw up papers in case this doesn't work out. We can hear Mary's parents saying, I think we better disown this child. She has brought such shame to our name. All of her friends, oh gosh, promiscuous Mary, she's turned up pregnant. We can no longer associate ourselves with her. And yet, she still says yes to what God is doing, even though she's likely going to lose everything. Her reputation, her ability to provide a life for herself, any stability, some kind of future for her child. She risked all of that for what God is doing. It's perhaps an invitation to all of us to think, if our Christianity is not offensive to someone, if it doesn't bring ill repute to our reputation, then perhaps it's not faithful. Christianity should always be a risk. Always should be a risk. Yes, thank you. What else? Why does... Mary get chosen to be the mother of God. Yes, absolutely. We know there is this precedent here where people have been looking for the Messiah. And interestingly enough, they've assumed the Messiah is going to come through a man who's in Jerusalem, who's going to ride a war horse that's going to take down Rome with military might. And here, God chooses Mary. Again, this young girl that is helpless in so many ways according to the world around her. And that is what fulfills the scripture through David's line, this marriage that ultimately lasts a lifetime with Mary and Joseph and produces this child, Jesus. That is what God chose. Perhaps one way to think about this is God chooses Mary because God always chooses the unexpected the least likely, the person who would never be at the top of anybody's list of resumes. One of the things that I have become an evangelist for at Haywood Street is inviting those of us who grew up in homes, who have the ease and comfort of life to say, look for God in the person you least expected. Look for God in the places that we routinely don't see anymore or that we dismiss. And here we have this precedent in Scripture about saying, here's where God's going to show up. In this particular bloodline, which, by the way, is filled with murderers and prostitutes and derelicts and people who did not follow the will of God. And in this text, it has come to be that this is exactly where God goes. It is not so much for the perfect for those that have done everything right, but rather those who have said yes to God, including David, including Joseph, including Mary. That's where Jesus comes from. And if you're anything like me, that sounds an awful lot like my family tree. <laughs> A bunch of people that have made mistakes and fumbled through life and had skeletons in the closet and who have said, you know what, I got that wrong. That is enormously hopeful for me that God's Messiah would come through David, 
a king who was flawed in every possible way. And then we have Mary and Joseph, these two very ordinary people who had their own problems. Sounds like my life. Anybody else? She was willing. Ah, such a, a beautiful response. The truth is God's plan for salvation is fragile. Most of us think everything God does has a certainty. It's absolute. It can be unchanged. But Mary is willing. And that means in this text, God's plan is dependent on a human response. If Mary says no, then Christmas doesn't happen. Let me say that again. If Mary says no, then Christmas doesn't happen. And that's a reminder to me, how many things is God asking of me and of all of us that we say, I'm sorry, God, this was not in my weekly planner. This is inconvenient. This is going to ruin my life. I'm unwilling. And whatever God has for us doesn't happen because we won't cooperate. There's one thing that we believe about grace, and that is grace is never coercive. God is not going to use us against our will. It's always invitational. And here, Mary has the chance to say, Not me. No, thank you. I want no part of this. Leave me alone and let me go back to my life as I knew it. But she didn't. She was a willing partner. She cooperated with God's intention for the salvation of the world. Nothing else happens without Mary's yes. She was willing. And one thing that is worth naming over and over again is our two most important High Holy Days of the Year, Easter and Christmas, they both required a yes, and both of those yeses came from women. It can never be overstated that God's plans are mediated through women who said, I will be a part of what you are doing. And this notion that somehow women are not part of ministry or women should not be ordained or women are somehow secondary to men, it's simply not Christian, nor is it biblical. It's over and over again the women who say, I will follow you, O God. In seminary, I remember our male professor telling us, if you take the United Methodist women out of the denomination, the denomination simply ends. That's actually not something new. <laughs> it started with Mary. None of us are here if Mary doesn't say yes. And none of us are here if the women at the empty tomb don't say, he's not in there. He's been set loose in the world. He's alive. Yeah. There was somebody else. Her purpose. Her purpose. Yeah, say more. What about her purpose? God's timing and her purpose. God had already said this is what was happening. Yeah. And her purpose was to be chosen to bring forth the faith of God. Yeah. To clothe her spirit. There is no question. There's a reason we call it the Immaculate Conception. Not just because there wasn't a, a physical father. It's, it's miraculous also because, again, Mary is willing to give herself over to having one purpose. For the mothers in the room, you already know this. Once you become a parent, everything else is a secondary purpose. 
Mary understood that even as this young girl. God has called me to be a steward of your son, the most holy of holy among us, the human of all humans. And she singular gave her attention to that very task. And for that, we should revere her. We should hold her up as the matriarch of all of us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. A number of you know that I became a parent myself recently. And I remember the day that my wife and I, Peyton, headed to the hospital. It was interesting leading up to that. We had been prepped quite well. We had gone to see the geneticist. We had gone to see the OBGYN. We had been to the pediatrician over and over again. We'd even met with labor and delivery nurses. We had found ourselves in the nine months leading up to the birth at doctor appointment after a doctor appointment after a doctor appointment. And I remember when we arrived at the hospital that morning for the planned C-section, it occurred to me there hadn't been one doctor appointment for me. (laughs) I am getting used to it. And so the pattern held there at the hospital. We gathered in this little room, and all the directions were uh, asked of my wife, and I was sitting in the corner. And they huddled around her, and they prepped her, and then they said, all right, it's time for you to go. And they took her to pre-op, and they left me in this room that didn't have any windows for about 45 minutes alone with my thoughts. Finally, a nurse came and got me, and she escorted me in silence down this maze of disorienting hallways. Then we arrived at the OR. I'd never been in an OR, but the lights were brighter than these. And they opened the doors, and it felt like this blinding, blinding light unlike anything I'd ever seen. My eyes could not adjust for the first few minutes, but what I could make out is that there were all of these medical personnel in there, about two dozen of them, and they were covered head to toe in these blue gowns, and all you could see was the white of their eyes. And not one of them paid me any attention. And so I walked in, and there was my wife, Peyton, and she's there on the table, and there's this curtain that seemed like it was cutting her in half, and above the curtain, there she was, her arms tied to the table, and IVs and needles and all these tubes and beeping machines, and then below the curtain, they had already made the incision, and literally when I walked by, I could look into her bowels. There she was, her whole body splayed open. Well, literally, I'd been there three minutes, a few tugs and groans later, the surgeon reached into my wife's cavity and pulled out this child, and I still hadn't even adjusted to the light, and then they said, here, father, here's your daughter. I assumed with all of those lonely thoughts by myself that what I'd be most overwhelmed about was becoming a parent, getting to hold this healthy child, knowing that my life would be forever changed, and that's true. But I didn't leave the hospital so much as a dad. I left the hospital even more emotionally overwhelmed as a a husband who realized for the first time the extent at which women, mothers, will go to to bring life into this world. Now Mary, she had all the raging hormones. She lost control of her body. She didn't sleep. She was handcuffed to the bed for those nine months. But we also remember for Mary, 
She had the townspeople whispering about who was the father. She had Joseph meeting with a divorce lawyer. She had her parents wondering if it's time to disown her. And on top of all of that, the angel Gabriel comes and says, it's just you and me. Are you willing to do this? And she says, yes. Perhaps the most beautiful Greek word in the whole New Testament is theotokos. It's a word that regrettably only comes up once a year in this text we are reading today. And theotokos means God-bearer. The reason Mary is chosen is because she is willing to be God's bearer of life. She is willing to say, I will be a steward of what you are doing with no questions asked and with a deep obedience. Even though I don't understand what you are doing, God, I will be the mother to your child. For that, she is worthy of reverence for all of our days. And what is most touching to me about the story of Mary is that when we embrace her for her faithfulness, we also realize that she is the matriarch of our faith, and therefore, spiritually, we have our genetics in our soul. Friends, Christmas is a confusing time. But if there is anything to remind you of over and over again is that you are Theotokos as well. Every one of us is a God-bearer. Whether you are a man or a woman, you are pregnant with the possibilities of what God is trying to do in this world, and God needs your womb to bring about God's kingdom here on earth. So hear the good news. We're all expecting. (laughs) Let us pray. Oh God, indeed, this is a confusing time of the year. There are too many eggnog toast and too many reasons to collapse on a pile of unwrapped gifts. And the holiday music lulls us into a sense of sentimentality more and more earlier and earlier every year. But the reason we come to church is because we so easily forget. And so we are gathered here to be reminded that it's not our birthday, that we are not trying to gather our lives around ourselves, but rather around your son. And we give thanks as we remember his birthday that it was his mother, Mary, that made all of this possible. Remind us, O God, that we have the capacity to give birth to your love in the world and that it's through our bodies, our flesh and bone, that incarnation happens today and every day. Give us over to this truth as we give our lives over to you. We pray this in the name of the one who came among us. Amen.